Well, good evening, everyone. Hey, it works first time. It's, it's been a good night. All the technology worked the first time. So, Well, good evening. It's great to see you in a little different setting, obviously, than usual. But I am so glad to be back with you this evening. And um, I want to start just a minute too early because I want to update you on, on Brother Lee. And I just want to say up front how appreciative I am of Lee stepping in when all this happened and, um, and was doing a study that fit right into what we were doing with the Old Testament survey. And, uh, of course, a lot of you heard uh, Brother Lee went to the hospital Friday evening. Uh, it, it got me to thinking, it's almost hazardous to your health to teach this class. Um, but he went to the hospital Friday evening with a pretty severe shortness of breath, and they ran some tests some test on him. I'm saying Friday. Is that right, or was it Saturday? All runs together. Um, and they did some tests. Uh, the results generally came back good, heart good, blood good. Uh, but what they narrowed it down to was something in his lungs. Uh, but I did uh, have, uh, was conversing with Lori, his wife, this uh, afternoon, and he's back home from the hospital and uh, hopefully uh, planning to do some tests this week as they'll start, you know, a regimen of tests to figure out what his situation might be. So we will certainly be praying for Lee. So add him to your list, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing if we trust good news ahead. So I'm glad he's home, and that's always a good thing for sure rather than being at the hospital. So that's a, uh, that's a blessing in many ways. And um, so Lee and I, I think Lee probably announced to you, I'd plan to step in next Sunday night anyway. I was going to let him finish his series. He had one more lesson, and maybe sometime in life we'll come back to that just to finish it up. But um, I think he had the Feast of Tabernacles, if I remember correctly, to finish with that. And um, so, uh, so coming back tonight was not a hard thing. I'd already had lessons done and, and all prepared and ready to go for sure. And um, so, so, so glad to see you. So, hope you had a great day. We had a wonderful service here today, and always a treat with the children, young people here to remind us of uh, the responsibility and the opportunity we have to influence a generation that's growing up around us, and the shadows we cast will, will uh, last for many years to come in those lives. So we, we trust we'll continue to be an influence in all the best ways for those, those young people. As they get a school year started and everything uh, going, tomorrow morning, you know, if you've got to go somewhere tomorrow morning, avoid the bus routes, right? Because they'll be out bright and early get picking up children and getting them to their destinations. Um, we are going to, we're going to pick back up as, of course, our, our, my intention is still uh, to do kind of a quick run through an Old Testament survey. And, uh, you know, we spent the month of June kind of introducing that study and going through Genesis in about three lessons. And uh, so tonight we're going to pick that up, and we're going to run with it and sort of see. I'm going to plan out. My goal was to originally to finish this before we get to December, and I still probably will do that. Um, it's just going to be some, some of the things will be a little more condensed than otherwise. But I'd like to finish before we get to December. As most of you know, in December, the church, you know, December life turns upside down, and including the church calendar and church schedule. So on Sundays in uh, December, we do not have evening Bible study fellowships. Uh, there's other things that are happening, and they're all great things for sure. We have a children's uh, musical Christmas program they'll do the first Sunday night. We got all the December calendar worked out this week in staff, so I now know what I can tell you. The second Sunday is the Nativity, the live Nativity that we'll do here the second weekend. And that's a Friday night and Saturday night, and that involves lots of people. And then the third Sunday night, the choir will be doing their cantata, and then the fourth Sunday night is Christmas Eve, so we'll not have services that night. And uh, so December is kind of off the evening Bible study fellowship schedule, and we'll come back in January. And I want to start a new study in January, um, assuming we all live to 2024, right? Uh, and uh, so we're looking forward. And, uh, right, and it's not going to surprise any of us that it's going to be here before we know it as things uh, constantly move. Uh, remind you just a few things that are going on in the church calendar. Have you picked up a weekly connect? Uh, things going on this week. You'll notice there, be praying for the food pantry distribution tomorrow. Uh, it's always the last Monday of the month, and they'll be here in the morning, and Mary was back there today doing a few things, I know, too. Um, they'll be doing that in the morning from 10 till noon, so if you think about pray for that ministry and the outreach it has to families. And then um, on Wednesday evening, regular Wednesday evening service, but we do have one of our missionaries that we've supported for many years, uh, Mark Cabrera, is going to be with us. He's a Filipino by birth and a missionary of the gospel, and uh, he's going to be in sharing with us. First time in many years Mar's been with us. So he'll be with us Wednesday evening to share a little bit of the work that's going on in the Philippines. And uh, he's one of three or maybe four that we support in the Philippines. So looking forward to catching up with him. 
uh, Thursday morning for those of you involved. And if you're not, you're welcome to come join us for Day 5 Fellowship. Uh, we have a guest speaker from outside our church coming to share with us. So we're looking forward to Thursday morning. We'll open the doors about 9.15 and we'll start at 10. And uh, so come and share and enjoy that on Thursday. And um, then uh, before you know it, um, August is over, right? And then we're looking at September uh, starting uh, the next weekend. And of course, next, week, next weekend's Labor Day. We will have normal uh, Bible study fellowship schedules on um, next Sunday. So nothing out of the ordinary there. The month of September has its own busyness with it. And I'll remind you again of our family and friends day at the park. So we hope you'll mark that off your calendar and come join us. We'll have lots more details to share with you next Sunday about that. But we're looking forward to that, that opportunity and hope to give families a reason to come grab the kids and let's go spend some fun at the park and some things we'll be doing as a church there also. Um, and then September is going to start its own way of working through way too fast all over again. So lots of things here. And of course, you heard this morning, um, Brother Wayne Moore, uh, one of our deacons, talk about our celebration for Pastor Paul and Karen after 40 years here at Gospel. And that'll be October 1st, the evening of October 1st. And uh, so no Bible studies that evening. And uh, it'll be a, a great celebration event to rejoice and just to share our, our appreciation and love for them and the ministry they've had there of course, uh, not only a big part of their lives, but a big part of our lives as a church and as individuals, too. So uh, all those things are on the horizon and not very far away, right? They're going quickly. Um, of course, tonight as we pray, as we start, I want to just ask the Lord to bless our time and bless all the groups that are meeting. Of course, we're just one of several that are meeting around the campus this evening, and uh, we just want the Lord to be honored and his word to be um, brought before us so that we can see his work and hand in it. So... Um, uh, let me, uh, again, express my appreciation for your prayers and uh, for your expressions of concern and love. I appreciate those so much. Uh, those always mean a lot. You know, you, you sort of reminded these times just uh, how important a family of a church is and how, and, uh, how much it is to feel that, that love and compassion and the prayers for sure. Uh, my, um, my progress is going fine. You know, it's a slow process, but I'm still in therapy twice a week. Um, and, uh, and, get, and that's going along fine. It's, they asked me to do a little more every week. I'm still wearing a, a nice metal brace through my leg, and I'll probably be wearing it for several weeks to come. The next thing on my horizon is a shoulder surgery uh, on my left uh, ro rotator cuff. Uh, the doctor used the, t used the term massive tear. That's always great to hear. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the plan is to have that surgery on uh, September 13th. And then you'll see me uh, getting around somehow. I'm not sure if it'll be in a wheelchair, a walker, or a cane, or just leaning, leaning a lot on Kelly. Uh, but I'll also, I'll also have a sling with that, uh, that arm while it's healing, and then we'll start the recovery process for that. So uh, uh, this in no way, though, has slowed me up from trying to be on Dancing with the Stars. I just want you to know. Um, I'm still, that's one of my goals, right? So, no, obviously, uh, looking forward to things ahead, and I'll be glad when it's just a story to tell. Well, let's pray as we gather this evening around God's Word, and we'll sort of jump back into our study on Old Testament survey. Father, thank you tonight for your blessings. We are all recipients of your good and daily blessings upon us, and uh, we know that uh, you have all things in your control, and we are just thankful tonight that we can gather here and uh, open your Word and, and before us and uh, be encouraged by it and what we see in, in, in not just currently, but even as we look back at the history of events and that have recorded in your word, where you have been active, you've been engaged, you've been involved, and, and today you seek to be that in our lives and help us to be submissive to your will and, and to see you active and engaged and involved in our day-to-day -day activities. I pray that you'll bless our church this evening as we gather in many places for the Bible study fellowships and uh, that you will be honored through the teaching of your word. We pray for those needs on our prayer list, and we tonight lift up uh, Brother Lee and pray that the days ahead will be days of rest. And as he goes through these tests, we pray that you'll give insight direction to the, to the medical teams that will be looking after him to determine exactly what the need is. And I pray that you'll bless he and Lori through this time and these days ahead. Uh, bless others on our list. Uh, we know that there are many needs and varied needs, and uh, we lift them up to you with confidence. And I pray that you'll allow us to be um, mindful to pray for those, our, fr our, our friends, family, church family, uh, each day, and that you will be... Um, uh, just honored through those circumstances. Uh, bless our time these next few moments as we look into your word, and we pray that what we learn will be honoring to you and helping us to see the, 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 the big picture of what the Bible teaches, particularly in the Old Testament, of the, of the coming of Messiah 
and of the, the grand scheme of redemption that you put in place um, so many years ago. I pray that uh, they'll be afresh and new to us and ask that you'll be honored through all we do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, the last time I was here before you, we were finishing Genesis. And um, I just thought, well, we'll let's take a, just a quick review of Genesis. Most of us know the book of Genesis. It, of course, is the book of beginnings. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Those first couple of verses in uh, Genesis chapter 1 introduced to us God's Word. And God's Word introduces us to God as the Creator. And uh, so we spend um, much time in that creation account of Genesis chapter 1, supplemented by Genesis chapter 2. And we look at how the, the plan of God's creation is laid out for us as a narrative. In today's world, there are lots of viewpoints on Genesis. You're not hard-pressed at all to find people who have different and varied viewpoints. But uh, I will submit to you, I will be glad to take Genesis 1 and 2 as a narrative of history and actual accounts. Some people today want to pass off Genesis 1 and 2 as poetic. Uh, it is not. It is not poetic in the English language. It is not poetic in the Hebrew language. Um, it is historical narrative. This is what happened and God created in those six days all that there is. If you're stuck with that issue, then you have to, all you have to do is read other places in the Bible. Uh, go to Genesis chapter 20, um, where it talks about God created all things in six days, and on the seventh day rested. Uh, go to John chapter 1. All things were made by him, and was, without him was not anything made that was made, right? Uh, go to Revelation chapter 4 where it says that thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and riches and power, for thou hast created all things. There is a strand of creation that runs all through the scriptures. Jesus himself said, did not God make man and woman in his image? Uh, and so, you know, the, the issue of creation is a, is a settled issue. Um, so Genesis 1 and 2 give us that account. Uh, and then we work our way through those re remaining chapters leading up to chapter 11. And we're familiar with those big events, chapter 3, is the, um, uh, the uh, Garden of Eden and the choice of rebellion and sin. Chapter 4 is the account of Cain and the murder of his brother Abel. How quickly does sin show its, show its corruption its, and its perversion? In chapter 4, you've got brothers killing each other, or a brother killing another brother. Chapter 5 is a genealogy, which the genealogies are important. We've mentioned that before. We're going to see a genealogy before we finish here tonight. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 is the account of the flood. And again, that's a topic that's got lots of variation to it. And, and uh, I will submit to you, I again, will take God at his word and see the account as being a worldwide judgment. Uh, you know, our culture, in some cases Christianity in general, has sort of weakened the account of the flood. We're used to seeing, uh, I've spoken at churches in the, in the triad area before on the topic of the flood. And one of the things I often remind them, and it's true, of, it's still true today, for some reason, churches have relegated Noah to the nursery. I don't know why we think Noah is, belongs in the nursery, but that's about the only place we have him anymore. Uh, the accounts of the flood are very, again, historical narrative. There's a lot of logic there. There's a lot of, um, a lot of reality of judgment that comes, and those accounts recorded for us. And many, of, many here have been, I hope to be there in a couple of months. I have plans to be at the Ark in uh, Kentucky. We'll see where life takes us, but uh, we're holding on to that thought. Uh, there's a, a conference there that I'm going to be, um, uh, be attending, and I'm looking forward to that. But uh, we've been to the Ark in, in Kentucky and seen what Answers in Genesis built. And uh, we've, we've heard there, you want a great place to go and a great family vacation, make that it. Put that on your bucket list for sure. Uh, it's a great trip. So the account of the flood is given to us. In chapter 8, uh, they come off the ark. In chapter 9, you have the account of the distribution of the goods to Noah's three sons and his family, and they sort of reestablish life. There's the account of Noah there. That's a very interesting account of the drunkenness of Noah. And again, I'm not diving into those topics, but it's there. The Bible is very honest about Noah. He was a man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but he was still human, and he still had a sin nature within him and the implications that go with that. Chapter 10 is also a genealogy. Chapter 10 is more appropriately titled The Table of Nations uh, because it does portray to us the lineage of Shem, Ham, and Japheth and, and the directions of which those uh, descendants travel. And we can say today, uh, through that table of nations, we can account for the population of the earth 
in what we now, a discussion we can have now in our lifetime that hasn't been had by any generation prior to us, is we can have the discussion of DNA um, and the, the trail of human uh, genetics through that discussion. You get to chapter 11, and you have the account of the Tower of Babel. And there we're introduced to a man named Nimrod, one of the least mentioned individuals in the Bible. I often call Nimrod the most important person you've never heard of in the Bible because he has a tremendous role to play, but it's a short account that's given to us. So many people have overlooked him. And the, the, we get a, a view of the situation at the time and the idolatry that was already start beginning to settle in. And God's judgment there was established in the confounding of the languages. And uh, today, humanity has, you know, some 7,000 languages and dialects uh, because of the, the variants that have, that have grown off of that di uh, di diversity of languages. So that's chapter 11. In chapter 12, we're introduced to Abraham. Abram, as we'll first find him, mentioned actually in chapter, in chapter 10 in the genealogy tables. Um, and we follow the life of Abraham. And then we work our way through the remainder of the book of Genesis through chapter 50, following the lineage of Abraham and his son Isaac, the son of promise. We also follow a bit of the trail of Ishmael and the account that's given there and the story that goes with that with his mother Hagar. And we most of us are familiar with those storylines. We go from Abraham to Isaac and from Isaac to his son Jacob. His two sons, really, Jacob and Esau. We follow the, primarily the path of Jacob. And then of Jacob's uh, 12 sons, or the sons that will develop the tribes of the nation of Israel, particularly the attention is given to Joseph. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 50, those individuals that are called the patriarchs are what we would associate that term to be the founding fathers of the nation of Israel, the human founding fathers, would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the lineage of Joseph. And all those men will live their lives and, and die by the end of Genesis. And so Genesis is an extremely important book because it is the book of foundation and the book of beginnings for the Bible. If you take Genesis out of the Bible, you're left scratching your head a lot. Where does sin come from? Where does the promise of a redeemer, a Messiah come from? Where does the nation of Israel come from? You know, again, if you take Genesis out, that's why it's important to know the book of Genesis well. It will help you understand the rest of the Bible so clearly. And uh, so Genesis is important for sure. Well, we, we turned the time from Genesis, of course, then to the book of Exodus. Uh, and most of us, you know, again, somewhat familiar territory. You've probably seen the movie with Charlton Heston, right? I mean, you know, we know some things about the book of Exodus uh, in our own studies or some of the things that have done there. And, of course, the, the key character in Exodus is introduced to us in chapter 1 uh, is Moses. And uh, we, we, again, have some detail of Moses' life, even from his birth. And uh, the account of him being uh, under the uh, judgment of the Pharaoh who intended for all the male children to be slaughtered because they were becoming such a population in Egypt. And the account of his mother, um, Jacobed, taking and putting him in, his, in this basket and turning him loose in the Nile River. That had to be a heartbreaking moment for, for any mother to turn her child loose. Uh, anticipating that in all likelihood the crocodiles would probably have him for lunch. Uh, but in God's providence, of course, he is found and raised in the house of Pharaoh. And uh, Moses is a very interesting life. He, through history, has been one of the most interesting individuals of the Old Testament as, in particular, but of the Bible as a whole. And you will find books written about the account of Moses that stretch beyond the Bible, of course, uh, for, many, for many generations. And the account of Moses today still catches the attention of much of the world uh, because many of the many different religious groups, Christians, Jews, um, Muslims, will, will have some identity of Moses and some place for him in their, in their uh, history. And so we know some great things about, about this man, of course. Uh, the images up here maybe bring back some of those, some of those pictures. Uh, we think of Moses as being uh, that babe in the, in the reeds, uh, taken out by the, uh, the princess there. Uh, we think of, of uh, Moses in chapter 3, where he comes before the burning bush there at Mount Sinai. The very first part of Exodus moves very rapidly in the life of Moses. You don't have to read very far until he's an adult, until he is looking to escape Egypt, until he finds himself in the household of Jethro. And, uh, and there 
he finds himself at the Mount of God or Mount Sinai where he encounters God in the burning bush, a, a scene we're familiar with to some degree from, from chapter 3. Um, then, of course, God calls him to deliver the people, and uh, it will be he who will stand there on the, the edge of the, of the Red Sea uh, and uh, declare this, uh, the, the power of God to separate the waters to allow the escape of the Hebrew nation, some two to three million people. Imagine that line and that mass of, of, of movement. And then, of course, by the time we get to chapter 20, it is Moses who has worked his way as God's called them back to Sinai after the release of Pharaoh to receive the commandments of God. Uh, the, preamble, uh, or, or the preeminent part of that commandment, of course, is the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. And then we follow the life of Moses, uh, primarily through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's going to be near the end of Deuteronomy before Moses passes off the scene. And we'll put, again, these first five books give us a lot of history that are important to understand the rest of the Bible. Let's talk about Moses, though, for a, for a moment. Uh, you know, again, I, I like the pictures of Charlton Heston. I think they just are, are very, very iconic to the whole story um, with this. But uh, uh, Moses, as God's leader, certainly uh, was a man prepared for his position. Think about Moses' life while he was in Egypt. He was trained by the best. He was educated in all the ways of Egypt. He knew writing. He knew the process of building. There are many things that he would have learned as, uh, as royalty in Egypt that were just, that would prove to be beneficial to him. But then God, after those 40 years, sends him to the desert where he will spend another 40 years in the household of being a shepherd. And there he will learn a very different lifestyle. He will learn to live in the tents and to be more of a Bedouin, to move with the herds and the seasons. He will learn self-sufficiency and self-survival in the desert. How much God was preparing him through those two 40-year periods, uh, I think, will, are only evident to us as we think about what God will call Moses to do as he leads the people of Israel to the promised land. And God was preparing Moses as only God could. And in doing so, Moses uh, today is still affirmed and acclaimed uh, by many, in the, obviously Christian and Jewish particularly, as being one of the most influential, important people uh, to understand of the Bible. Uh, Moses' life, too, is quite a study. Uh, not a perfect man. He had his moments. Uh, he had his frustrations. He had uh, his anger, understandable from a human perspective in so many ways. But he also had a heart for God. Um, he really was desirous to serve the Lord and to, and to intervene on behalf of his people and, and to take that position, although reluctant at first, to take that position and to see God's movement and his God's hand in all of it. I think what Moses demonstrates to me most is the reality of something that and to some degree impacts all of us. And that is when we get to the point where we, we realize we can't do it. We've got to surrender to God. We've got to be able to say, Lord, you're going to have to make this happen. I can't do it. Moses made a lot of excuses there in Exodus chapter 3. I don't speak well. I'm the wrong person. I mean, you know, we've, we've had those conversations with the Lord ourselves at times. And Moses demonstrated, however, a tremendous courage later in his life. But he had to learn some important lessons. And again, there's enough experience in this room to, for all of us to appreciate the value of those lessons Moses had to learn before he was able to fully accept this role that God had put him in. Moses was born a Hebrew, of course, uh, through the lineage. We're going to see a, a, a connection to that in the genealogy in a moment. Uh, delivered from death. The, the Nile would have been sure death. Uh, but God's providence delivered him and put him in, in a unique place to be raised as Pharaoh's, uh, in Pharaoh's house, which gave him the best of everything, uh, the best of education, the best of physical uh, needs, uh, just a status of knowledge and uh, a position of influence, no doubt. He would be exiled for 40 years as he leaves Egypt. And, uh, uh, and one of the events that would, would certainly sort of bring that to a culmination uh, was his anger at an Egyptian soldier. Uh, and he murdered an, murdered an Egyptian who was beating one of the, uh, his fellow Hebrews. And so we see, you know, if, if Moses had anything he probably wrestled with, I think it was anger and his quick temper. And, uh, you know, we can identify a little bit with that. 
so he leaves Egypt to be exiled for 40 years, where he lives again in the desert and learns a very different lifestyle. There in Exodus chapter 3, called by God, um, and all the tremendous things we see in that conversation. And then, of course, it's he who will ultimately lead the Hebrews out, along with his brother Aaron, and along with others like Joshua, his sister uh, will also be a part of that, Miriam. And uh, so that wilderness travel is, is really what we see in the book of Numbers. We're going to talk about Numbers in a couple of weeks, the book of Numbers. A book that sometimes gets confused to some people, doesn't seem to be very important, but it's, a, it's basically the travel log of what happened in, in much of that 40-year travel. Not all of it, for sure, but uh, certainly important parts of it. So Moses has a place to go. Now here's, here is a, a genealogy table that I've put up here before. If you've, seen, if you've not seen, I'll give you a minute to copy that down, right? Um, this particular genealogy table starts with, um, uh, at the top there, working its way down. Let me highlight a few things here. I think I can, I think, I hope you can, you might can see them better than I can on the small screen behind me. Yeah, that's a little bit better, isn't it? That, I've just circled there Abraham. So we, we get an opportunity to see the, the uh, lineage here of this. So, this is a genealogy that's picked up basically um, in chapter 10 of Genesis and, and begins this trail of, of Abraham here, or Abram as we're first introduced to him. By the way, Abraham marries Sarah, who is his half-sister. That's an interesting, interesting thought for our day and time. Uh, but at that day and time, that was not an, uh, not an illogical nor an immoral uh, marriage. God will not establish boundaries of marriage until you get to Leviticus around chapter 17, 18. Uh, but up until that time in Leviticus, which is going to be years after, uh, after the accounts given here, um, uh, marriage um, among close family members was not unusual. Uh, Abraham will marry uh, his half-sister, uh, same father, different mother. Uh, Abram's son Isaac will marry his first cousin. Uh, Isaac will marry Rebecca. And uh, so there's, a, there's those kind of connections are there. We'll take another time and discuss that, but just know at this point in time, it is neither uh, God had not prohibited it, and it was not, um, not uncommon for that to happen. And uh, of course, from Abraham, you then work your way to Isaac. And then from Isaac, you work your way down to Jacob, and through Rebekah, you have, of course, Esau, and uh, the lineage is carried here. From Jacob, of course, then you have this long strand of the sons of Jacob, which become the patriarchs or the individual uh, sons who will become leaders of their own families that will become the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. The uh, next thing to notice after that is... Uh, Levi, as one of the sons, the third son, Levi is a trail we will follow that will lead to Moses. Now again, all of this is in your Bible. What's not in your Bible is probably a genealogy chart like this. A lot of people, therefore, will open the book of Exodus and read about this person Moses and think that he just kind of appears out of nowhere. No, Moses is part of the genealogy that is led down through the patriarchs beginning with Abraham. And so Moses has a place in this that's very influential, but he also has the requirements or meets the requirements, if you will, of being in the genealogical line of the patriarchs. And so there's Moses for us. So uh, again, I'll make a comment here. It used to be that Bibles, beginning with um, the first edition of the King James Bible in 1611, Bibles used to have genealogy charts in them. Um, if I remember correctly, in the first editions of the, and for many editions of the King James Bible, well, in, well into the 1900s, you would find genealogy charts based upon this type of description, uh, which helps people see, again, the bigger picture of who individuals are and how they're connected one to another and how they're related one to another. Uh, that's been lost in our, in our publishing world of today's Bible. You have to go find this stuff and, and search it out. You may find an old Bible. If you find an old family Bible, you may find some older Bibles that still have some of these charts. But for the most part, they, they kind of disappeared somewhere in the mid-1900s um, and lots of other things that went with the Bible. 
Um, I think the first editions of the King James had something like 60 or 70 pages of Bible helps to help you understand the Bible even before you got to the book of Genesis uh, that you would, you would find very useful. We today have a multitude of study Bibles. They all have their place, but you don't typically find a lot of genealogy charts in Bibles. So if you've come across a Bible that has one, you have something that's pretty much out of the norm for what we find in most Bibles today. So let's pick up the events in Exodus and uh, sort of follow along in a general sense, again, not chapter by chapter, but more clumps of chapters together and sort of remind ourselves of what's happening in the book of Exodus. In chapters 1 and 2, we're told about the conditions the Hebrews were in and the, the hard uh, life they had found themselves in. Remember, the Hebrews are in Egypt because they came there at the invitation of Joseph. So when you get to the very end of Genesis, or toward the end of Genesis, the famine had been so difficult. And Joseph, of course, had led Egypt through the time of the famine um, that when his brothers found out who Joseph was and his position in Egypt. He invited them to go back, bring their father, bring their families, all their children, and bring everyone down to Egypt and sojourn here. That should have been a temporary stay because God's promised land was not in Egypt, was it? It was the promised land of Israel. And yet they got there and they got comfortable you know what happened? They learned the language. They learned the food. They learned the ways to live as the Egyptians did. And they found themselves, after a few generations, fitting right in. But as you open the book of Exodus, it's going to say very plainly, there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph nor his family. History fills in some of the gaps, and I won't take the time today to do that, but history fills in some of the gaps that there probably was not a succession of Pharaohs or kings of Egypt, but rather an invasion from an outside uh, enemy of Egypt that invaded Egypt and overtook the throne of Pharaoh. So there's some historical things to read in there, some archaeological things, but the Bible tells us plainly that whoever was in power did not have a reference point for the story and the reverence of, of Joseph and what he had done in saving Egypt in generations past. So now the Egyptians find themselves as outside, I mean the Hebrews find themselves as outsiders to the Egyptians. And the Hebrews now find themselves in what we would call um, a slave status. And that they were, they were doing the grunt work of Egypt. And so we're told about those conditions and the difficulties they had in the account of how the Pharaoh intended to control the population of the Hebrews. Um, and the uh, birth of Moses is incorporated into that in those first couple of chapters. Again, we move pretty quickly. By the end of chapter 2, Moses is fleeing Egypt uh, to uh, escape uh, as being public enemy number one, and he flees to Midian, and it's there he will meet his wife uh, the, in the household and, uh, of Jethro and uh, will become, and for all practical purposes, a Midianite. The Midianites have a lineage and a heritage that follows um, also in the Bible. They are, they are kin to the Hebrews, but not a direct lineage. However, they are what we would know as Bedouin shepherds. They moved and traveled with the herds they, to different flocks, I mean to different uh, fields for their flocks to eat, and they would travel with the seasons. And in that account in chapter 3 is where Moses will find himself being called to the mountain to see the, the bush that is aflame but is not consumed, uh, the burning bush as we know it well. Chapter 4 picks up the account of Moses' return to Egypt. Why does he return? Because God has called him to go and tell the Pharaoh, we know those famous words, right? Let my people go. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so now we have Moses returning and whichever movie version you watch, that is always portrayed very differently, isn't it? But it's always intrigued me of what a surprise it must have been for someone to walk back onto the soil of Egypt, to walk to know exactly where the king's palace is, to be able to speak the Egyptian language, to be able to recognize the Egyptian priest and their gods, their idol gods. And yet he walks right in and he makes his declaration. And what a surprise it must have been that this man Moses is now back. And why has he come? To declare the one true and living God to the Egyptians who has called him to tell Pharaoh to let the people go to return to the land that is promised to them through their forefathers 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Moses returns. When you read those accounts, read them with the history it gives to us, but read it from a human set of eyes. I wonder how nervous Moses was to walk back into this place. I wonder how surprised the Egyptians were to see him. Uh, Moses was evidently a man of great respect and honor while he was in Pharaoh's house. And now to come back after some 40 years, looking like a shepherd from the desert, which he was, and making these bold claims about a god, wow, it must have been quite an encounter. And history, both in books and in movies, have tried to, I think, explain that uh, with some capacity of intensity. I think it's, that's there. Eventually, of course, God will show himself strong through Moses as he institutes the plagues upon the land of Egypt. I want to look at those plagues. We're familiar with some of them. And Mike can name them, uh, a few of them anyway. But the plagues, of course, are God's demonstration through the words of Moses as to the necessity of turning the people loose. When you go down through these, and again, it's a much deeper study than we've got time for in this lesson. When you look at these 10 plagues, what you find out is that each one of these plagues is actually an affront to one of the Egyptian idol gods. There was a god of Egypt that, had these, that, that represented the, the, the water. And of course, that was the god of the Nile. There was a god that incorporated the image of a frog, of insects, of, of, of the cattle, um, and uh, of, um, of flesh, of human flesh. A god come in the flesh. The Egyptians had their version of that idol. Um, even the god of, of fire, the god of the dark and the god of the light. Um, so all of these were there. Pharaoh, remember, was considered by the Egyptians himself to be a god. And so when, god, when these plagues come, they are not random. And again, it takes a little deeper study to go into knowing some, some, some of the Egyptian idol gods. Uh, but you can take every one of these and see how it was an affront. And when the Egyptians saw these things happen, without a doubt, their prayers went to that god who was represented by the cattle or the frogs or the insects. And yet those gods proved to, to be powerless at the words of Moses and the power of God is demonstrated in their lives. And of course, through those plagues, Moses kept returning to Pharaoh. Will you now let the people go? And his hard-heartedness as the intensity of these plagues grows demonstrates his unwillingness to even hear the option. And so the ultimate plague, of course, is the death of the firstborn. And it's through this death of the firstborn that's recorded for us that the pronouncement of this plague came with a promise that was to be delivered to the very uh, ears of the Hebrews there in Egypt. And that was the promise of the, what will be called the Passover. Passover is a word that's unique in the English Bible, uh, but it represents a word in Hebrew as it describes that account of being something to step over or skip over. It's actually in, in Bible history a word created by William Tyndale in his 1520-something edition, maybe 1530 edition of the English translation of the Old Testament. He was the first to use the word Passover, and today that word still echoes in our hearts and in our understanding of this account as um, uh, the, very, the very breaking point at which Moses now said, the firstborn of every household and of even the beast shall die on this night unless the, unless the account of God's provision is followed, even to the Hebrews. And so we have this account of what's called the Passover. If you remember the account of the Passover, it's an account where God said, take the lamb, take an innocent lamb, and, and bring it into your house for three days. And watch it. Make sure it's still healthy. Make sure it has no blemish, no spot, terms that we're familiar with in this discussion of sacrifices. And then it shall be slaughtered at a certain time. Its blood shall be taken and, and, and placed over the, door, uh, over the doorway and on the sides of the post, representing and foreshadowing, of course, not only the sacrifice of an innocent lamb for the Passover, but foreshadowing the coming Messiah. It's easy for us to look back and see that. I hope you do. It's really a, a representation of Christ the Messiah, whose blood will be placed at the top of the cross and on the arm extended of the cross, the arms extended. And 
um, this was followed. This was also incorporates a meal uh, where they were to have certain items and prepared. They were told to, to, to keep their sandals on, to keep their garments ready, to have everything ready for this night the Lord's deliverance shall come. And when the word comes, you shall be ready to leave quickly. Gather what you can and leave quickly because God's judgment will come and the Egyptians are going to move uh, to allow you to, uh, uh, to escape Egypt. And so that's a very intense moment. You read those words and those chapters and those accounts. And indeed, the, the angel of death will pass through that night. And the events are given to us um, of those who both survived and those who fell, vict who fell victim to their, their own um, rejection of Moses' message. As we continue through the events of Exodus, uh, we, of course, see them leave. And soon after, Pharaoh kind of regenerates his, his hatred and his desire. And his intent now is not to just let them go unassaulted, but rather to chase after them without a doubt to slaughter every one of them, male, uh, man, woman, and child, and animals, that they will not have any capacity um, uh, to fulfill their intent to leave uh, Egypt. So he sends his, his armies after them, his chariots, and we're told, of course, of that great account of the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, which ultimately brought the death of Pharaoh's army uh, that chased them. And God's hand of deliverance. And again, every book that's written, written about the account, every movie that's been produced uh, does it to the best of its ability, but I still think we are unable to fully understand all that did that. From chapters 15 to 18, uh, they work their way to Mount Sinai, and uh, it's there that they will encamp around Mount Sinai. And you have to read a little further into, the, into these books of the, of the Old Testament, but they will remain there for, for a year or more, I think it is. We'll, we'll look at that detail later. They actually will stay there. Moses will go up to the mountain, and he will receive the uh, commandments and, uh, and the Ten Commandments starting in, verse, in chapter 19, rather. Uh, chapters 19 through 24 is that account of Moses at the mountain and of God providing the commandments that shall be given. Uh, the Ten Commandments and other laws. There's lots of other laws that are given. They are expounded more in Leviticus, but they are certainly uh, given here, and we see some of the details given to us in that account. In chapters 25 to 31, we read about this thing called a tabernacle. Uh, again, tabernacle is a word that comes into English from the Hebrew words that imply the image of a temporary dwelling. Sometimes it's called a tent, not a bad term, but in our modern world, we think of a tent as being something from, um, that you take on a hike with you and five or six people sleep in it, right? Uh, it just simply means a temporary dwelling. It will, be, it will be constructed of wood, and it will be constructed of cloth, and it will be constructed of animal skins. There is nothing permanent about the tabernacle. And as you read through those chapters, you fall into a lot of detail about how God wanted this tabernacle to, to look, what the materials were going to be, how the design was going to be instituted, and all that was going to be accomplished in the work of the tabernacle. This was something new for the, uh, for the Hebrews. What's a tabernacle? What's its purpose? It will ultimately become the place in which God's presence would be, would be manifest, and it would be the place in which the priest, which is a new thing that we're going to talk about in a moment, the priest will exercise their duties in representing the people to God and God to the people through this earlier part of making the Hebrews a nation of people after God's intent and his purpose. The design of the tabernacle described to us in chapters 25 to 31 is then, it's then that Moses comes down from the mountain. He's got these instructions from God. He's got these commandments, these intent for the people of how they're going to live as a nation. Now think for a moment how important this is because the Hebrews were really secondary Egyptians. They, this generation that was there at the base of Mount Sinai, this generation has, has had been succeeding generations for many centuries had only known the life of an Egyptian. And now to bring them out of Egypt was to take everything they had known and grown up in. And now God is having to reprogram them to follow his commands and his intent for them and his desire to make of them a nation that reflected his character of holiness and righteousness. 
And you read through those details, and they are expounded in more in the book of Leviticus, but you read through those details and you see God's intent. He intended for these people to learn how to live together, how to worship the one true and living God, how to function as a nation of people on their way to a promised land where they would function there as a foundation generation for the succeeding generations that would live in the promised land. And so that's a very important part of Scripture, often overlooked or kind of bypassed in the storyline. Again, movies do a poor job of this. Even when you, when you see the, the account that we're most, maybe most familiar with in our generation, the account of Charlton Heston in the movie of the Ten Commandments, uh, it seems like they're at the mountain just a very short amount of time. When Moses does come down, though, he finds, well, he first hears, but he finds a, a nation of people now that have turned their back on God. And what do they do? They do the only thing they know how to do, and that is they revert to being an Egyptian. What did the Egyptians do? What's one of their gods? The god that is bovine, cattle. And so they, they convince Aaron. He resists at first, but eventually he's convinced also that we need to do something. We want, we want God represented among us. And they create this idol in the shape of a calf. You know, it's an interesting thing as you read through the Old Testament. We'll come across it again, so let me mention it now, and we'll come across it again. Moses, dealing with this idol calf, is not the first nor the only time when this will happen. There will be other accounts where the nation of Israel, even after they get to the Promised Land, will create idols that are in the image of a calf. And uh, uh, we'll come back to that, and we'll mention it, but this is the first time. Why a calf? Because that was a god that they were familiar with in Egypt. So they revert back to being an Egyptian. It has often been said of the Hebrews, not only, start, I think, starting here, but as we follow them through the wilderness travels, getting to the promised land and even into the promised land, it was easier to get the Hebrews out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of the Hebrews. It was in their heart. It was the only culture they had known. It was the only language. It was the only religion they had known. And to get them out of the land of Egypt was the easier part. But to get Egypt out of them and the mindset of the Egyptians. When you hear them, when we get into the book of, um, of Numbers, and we hear them gripe and complain, right? Uh, and they, they bemoan what God has allowed them to do. They, they, con they condemn Moses. What are they constantly referring to? It was better back in Egypt. The food was better. We had easier, we had better water, we had better living conditions. They all, that's all they do. They refer back to Egypt. And so we're going to see this is the first of many times, and that will crop up in the storyline. Moses in his frustration. Here's Moses again. You know what he's doing? Being human, right? His frustration overcomes him. He has just spent, he has just spent this amount of time on Mount Sinai with God. And I'm sure he comes with great rejoicing and excitement, anticipation for what God is going to do. And now he comes back to this people who have turned their back on God and have no place for him. His frustration and, and anger gets the best of him. He destroys that original set of tablets in his frustration and basically condemns the Hebrews for saying, God is too good to you, to summarize or paraphrase it. God is too good to you. Look what God has done. You cried for deliverance all these years, and God delivered you, and this is how you treat him. Boy, you know, if you read that stuff long enough, it starts to sound like us, doesn't it? You know, God's done all this for you, and pretty soon we get this attitude that God owes us something, and God puts you in this condition. And pretty soon, if you read these accounts, it starts to sound a whole lot like us. It's just a reminder that humanity has not changed. The second set of tablets are created. The tabernacle is built. That's an exciting time. Once everything kind of settles down and once Moses gives the, uh, gets the opportunity to the ears of the people to say, here's what God has planned for you. Let's build this temporary dwelling where God's presence will be made manifest among us. The idols will be cast aside, not only the physical idols that you make, but the idols of your heart. The tabernacle is built. And we close Exodus in chapter 40. Now, the use of the tabernacle is not going to happen uh, until we get into the book of Numbers. Uh, but let's at least introduce ourselves to the tabernacle today. Uh, this is one of the most iconic um, structures of the Bible, of course. And the tabernacle here that is built in the desert there is a life-size 
uh, built in the, uh, in the Egyptian desert there to represent uh, what that tabernacle would have looked like. And again, you see it had a, a fence around it that would have been made of cloth. Um, it has inside of it the larger tabernacle proper, the larger tent, which was layered with various cloths and animal skins to make it weatherproof and waterproof, basically. And inside, of course, uh, as, you look at, as you look at this image, I can do this. Uh, as you look at this image here, that's the tabernacle proper in which there were two segments, the holy place, and then you walk to the back, it was the holy of holies, uh, where, the, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. When you read through those passages in Exodus that describe the tabernacle, they don't just describe the structure, they describe all of the pieces of the tabernacle and the detail that God put in it, what it should look like. Uh, out in front, you have here, this is the brazen altar where the sacrifices were made. This is the uh, brazen basin where there was water so the priest would have a supply of being able to wash his hands of the blood that would have come from those sacrificial um, events throughout the day. And then you walk back in the tabernacle. We're going to look at it. Give me a few minutes, just a few minutes here quickly. We'll finish with this. To look uh, with some, some images inside the tabernacle. Um, I did a very detailed study of the tabernacle. The very first auditorium Bible class we did in this building in 2005. Um, and I'll explain some of the details of that as we finish here too. But it's really a very fascinating study of the tabernacle. Um, you, you will see in it here sort of a cutaway of what it looked like on the inside. And in doing so, I want to label a few things. So let's label starting on the left-hand side there in the circles I'll put up. This again was the brazen altar. This is where this, the sacrifices of the animal and the animal parts would have been taking place. There would have been a perpetual fire burning under that and a grate on top. And the sacrifice of the meat would have been laid on top and consumed by that fire. There would have been, beside that, there would have been, again, the brazen um, a basin or big bowl, you might would call it. Basically, just a basin of water where the priest could go over and wash the blood off his hands from having done the sacrifices uh, after each time. Uh, you look then at the inside, the tabernacle proper. When you walk in the first compartment, there are three and only three things. On the right-hand side, there's the table of showbread. There were, there were 12 cakes. We would probably today call them pancakes, if you will. One that was contributed, one, one that represented each of the 12 tribes of the, of the nation of Israel. And those cakes were switched out every week. Um, there was a new set put in. Uh, at the very Again, that's on the right-hand side as you walk in. On the left-hand side as you walk in would have been the golden candlestick what we might call a menorah. It would have had seven stems uh, of oil that would have been burned to provide light for the priest while he's inside that area uh, to do his work. At the very back, there's a small table, probably not much bigger surface area than this little platform up here, or this little podium up here, rather. It was called the uh, table of incense. And God gave a very specific recipe of incense that was to be put on that tabletop, flat tabletop, and it would be ignited, and it would burn, and it, would, it was a very unique smell that was, that was given. It was a recipe that could only be used in the holy place of the tabernacle. So only those three things. And the priest would go into this holy place, either daily or weekly, as the law required, to perform his duties uh, in replacing the bread or igniting the incense or to provide more incense or to make sure the candles not the candles, the light, uh, the oil was properly supplied so they could burn. Well, then there's a, a divider that you can see there that divided the holy place in the front from the holy of holies in the back. And once you, and it was just a curtain. There wasn't a door there. There was a curtain. The priest had to pull the curtain back and walk through that curtain into the holy place. Only the high priest uh, was allowed back there. And in, the high, in that place, there was only one article, and that was the... the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Remember the word ark when you read Exodus both, and when you read Genesis about the ark of Noah, and you read the ark in the book of Exodus, the word ark simply means a box. Now the box can be as big as the ark of Noah or as small as the ark of the covenant, which was about maybe four and a half feet wide, a foot and a half, two feet um, uh, deep and wide. So the, this was the place, this box held 
uh, three things. It held some of the manna from the travels that they will eventually go to. It will hold Aaron's rod that budded, and it will hold the, uh, tab the uh, tablets of the law. And then over top of that, there was molded two angels that faced each other, who bowed toward each other. This is called the mercy seat. And this was the place where the blood would sprinkle. So the holy of holies was the place where once a year the high priest, and you read about this in Leviticus, the high priest would go behind that curtain once a year. He would take the blood of a spotless lamb with him, and he would sprinkle the blood on that holy seat. Now again, we should see the imagery there pretty quick. It's the imagery of the blood of a sacrificial lamb foreshadowing Christ to be placed there uh, for the covering of the blood, for the covering of the sins of the nation of Israel. Now, one of the things that's most important about this in, um, in Exodus is the garments of the priest. It is an extremely detailed uh, set of garments that he wears, uh, elaborate. Uh, it includes a turban at the top. There is a gold band fitted, and on the front of that gold band was engraved holiness to the Lord. Uh, there, were, there were gemstones. There were 12 gemstones on a breastplate, one representing each of the tribes and a different gemstone. There were stones on the shoulders that had the names of the six tribes on each one engraved on it. Um, it was a very elaborate garment, for sure, that the high priest would wear uh, to go and perform his duties. It tells me that God took coming into his presence very seriously. You know, this is not a pair of uh, khaki shorts and, and sandals to wear in the presence of God. Uh, this was something the high priest was expected and, ins and inspected before he went in. And the, the, um, the discharge of your duties was so important that if you did not dress properly uh, and come into God's holy presence properly, uh, death was the only alternative. And so there's some interesting, a lot of little interesting parts of that, but that was part of the work of the tabernacle for generations to come. So we finish with looking at Christ in Exodus. He is foreshadowed in Moses, the deliverer and the lawgiver. And matter of fact, uh, uh, even the prophecy of Moses given in the book of Deuteronomy will say, there will arise another like unto me, and that will be the Messiah. The plagues that Jesus, the manifestation of God himself, is superior to all the idol gods of Egypt. And I'm pretty sure we can say confidently that Jesus is superior to all the idol gods of our culture also. Uh, our culture certainly has their gods. The Passover, Jesus, our sacrifice. We see him in the spotless lamb of the sacrifices. The elements of the tabernacle, that light, Jesus, the light of the world. The, the uh, showbread, it's often called, that Christ is the bread of life. And the incense, a sweet-smelling savor offered before the Lord in his sacrifice. Back in the Holy of Holies, that Ark of the Covenant, where the holy place where God's presence will be known. And even in the high priest, you go to the book of Hebrews, you will see the writer there describe Jesus as our high priest. He fulfills all the requirements of the Old Testament priest in perfect completion. And so it's not hard to foreshadow those things and to see those. We read Exodus as history, but in a real sense, we also read it as prophecy because it foreshadows Christ and his coming. So there's Exodus, right? So hang on to your hats. Next week, it gets more exciting. We get to Leviticus. And what we may try to cover Leviticus and Numbers. Give me some time this week to plug those thoughts in and see if we can cover all that. Leviticus is not a terribly um, lengthy book or difficult book to cover, but we'll see lots of things there. So next week we'll move to Leviticus and answer the question, why is the Leviticus important and what's its purpose in the Scriptures? Well, I'll remind you, and thank you for those of you who have continued support, in my absence particularly, the Appel family and their, their continued work. I uh, get emails from him every month, and uh, what a great work he and his family are involved in. Uh, his nine children, many of them are, some of them are here in the States in their college years. You can tell by that picture just made this past year that he's still got plenty of young ones around the house to look after and uh, to bring up as they're serving the Lord there. So we appreciate the Appel family. I am looking forward to the day when Jed and Amy can come visit us. Jed has been here before, uh, but he's on the other side of the world from us, and I know life there is busy for him, so I'm hoping on one of his furloughs uh, here to the eastern United States, he'll be able to come and share with us a little more firsthand experience here. But thank you for your supporting him. Well, thank you for your patience with that. That's a lot to cover in a familiar book, and we'll continue this very quickly. And Lord willing, next week, uh, continue to pray for Lee, though, as he's away, and I know we have many others. And I hope you'll be back with us Wednesday night. We catch everybody up on our prayer list. Well, let's pray and we'll dismiss there. Father, thank you for our time tonight. 
Well, uh, Exodus is an exciting book in so many ways. Uh, we see you doing marvelous and, and miraculous things. May it be truly a reminder that you are the God supreme, and you are the God that overshadows all other idols, and there is none who has the power that you have. And we are thankful tonight to be able to call you not just our God, but our Father, who serves, uh, who we serve with humility. Help us to see ourselves in the complaints of the Hebrews and the frustrations of Moses so that we may serve you better and that we may be a testimony to you, our true and living God. We pray that you'll bless us as we dismiss. Bless the days ahead and the week ahead for your glory. We pray that we'll uh, see your hand mightily in our lives. And again, we close tonight by praying and lifting up those on our prayer list, especially Brother Lee and, and others who this week will face uh, challenges and tests and, and uh, different things and needs. We lift them before you, realizing that you're able to meet each one. And we pray you'll send us with your blessing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Hope you do have a great week as you look to end the month of August.